everyone. Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, here today with two very special guests, uh, Nando Vila, who you, of course, know and love from Weekends, and Young Kale Brooks. Uh, it's a little early, guys, but happy Halloween. Oh, happy thank Halloween. you so much. Very excited, you know? Monster Mash season to me. I mean, that's what I, I just get. To, it's a good excuse to listen to Monster Mash on repeat. What are you guys going to do for Halloween? I think Nando just told us. Just... Yeah, that's true. Kale? For, I'm for actually really drink. bummed out. I'm bummed out because I, I have a wedding on Halloween. Oh. And I, there's, it's not a costume wedding. I, at first I was like, oh, that's cool. It's going to be a costume <laughs> wedding, right? And no, it's like, you know, suit and tie. Yeah. Interesting. Why yes. did they choose that date? I'm guessing because there was just not a lot of dates available. Because yeah, of like they like, pandemic back, backlog, yeah. you yeah. know? Um, so. <laughs> they are like, this is the one date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I am living, uh, not in New York for the first time in 10 years, as I think I've mentioned many times on this show. Uh, so I now live in a house and I think I'm going to get trick or treaters, uh, after, you know, 10 years of living in an apartment and in New York, um, if if you guys probably know that like kids go trick or treating at businesses because you can't really like go into people's apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. So I, I haven't decided if I'm going to look at kids, cute costumes and hand out candy or if I'm going to go to my friend's house, or if I'm going to just like turn off my porch lights, pretend I'm not home and watch horror movies in my bedroom. But those are, those are the options for me. Are you going to dress up? Do you have a costume ready? I don't have a costume. Um, like I sexy Bernie Sanders. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I yeah. love all of those like sexy current event costumes. Like I know yeah. that like everybody rolls their eyes about them every year and like they're a little, they can be a little much, but like if there was a sexy Bernie Sanders costume, I would absolutely uh, maybe not wear it, but like endorse endorse that right. being out in the world. I think I saw it. I think I really? saw a sexy version of the mittens meme. Mm. Yeah, I think I've seen it floating around. Uh, That's cool. I yeah. yeah. Well, I I wholeheartedly support it. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna Our- go as as Weird Al Yankovic in the Eat It video mm-hmm. with a leather jacket. Oh but yeah, that's a good now one. I have to just wear a suit and tie. With, right, with, yeah. Uh, well, no, no, no. You just go with like the the sumo wrestler, like inflatable suit, but like that's from the fat leather. video. <laughs> right, isn't that kale? Get your get your you uh, video. No, that's the fat video, oh. which is a play on Michael Jackson. It's a parody of Michael Jackson's "Bad" because right, I'm fat. Yeah, I'm fat. Right. It's the other Michael it. Jackson one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Eat it. All right, never mind. Anyway, well, regardless, I, that probably still isn't we- welcome at the wedding you're going to. So, yeah, yeah, I will be going as sexy Kirsten Cinema in her Austin Powers looking outfit. It'll, I, I think, I think that'll go over well. Yeah, yeah. that'll be a hit. <laughs> um, all right. Well, as you guys probably saw, uh, we are talking with Slavoj Žižek, the one and the only, today about the Russian Revolution. Uh, I should I should say that we uh, interviewed him yesterday, actually. So it is a pre-recorded interview. True to Slavoj's uh, spirit, he is a force of nature and cannot be contained. So if you are looking for a kind of step-by-step primer on all of the different events of the revolution, the Russian Revolution, this is this is not the video. But that said, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and at the end, he shared some of his thoughts on movies, including 
movies and TV shows, including Squid Game and Dune. So I think you definitely want to stay tuned for that. Uh, in the meantime, I was thinking, you know, because Slavoj loves movies, uh, he famously loves They Live. And we talked with him a little bit about movies and it's Halloween. Um, I wanted to talk to Nando and Kale, who are both film buffs, about horror movies. So guys, uh, you all love horror movies, right? Absolutely. Movies. Big fan. Big fan. Yeah. Uh, we'll we'll dive into the specifics of you know what what your favorites are in a second, but I I wanted to bring up when we were talking to Slavoj, he said something interesting. He was talking about Squid Game and The Handmaid's Tale, and he pointed out that a lot of films and TV, which are sort of marketed to liberal audiences and claim to be critical of some sort of system of oppression, so obviously in, in the case of Squid Game, that's capitalism, and in the case of Handmaid's Tale, that's patriarchy. He pointed out that when these shows or movies are like over the top gratuitous as I think I actually haven't seen Squid Game, but you know, with Handmaid's Tale, for instance, you see all of these terrible scenes of, uh, you know, oppression of women, sexual assault, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, Slavoj pointed out that because sometimes uh, these depictions veer toward the gratuitous, it sort of ends up having the opposite effect where the film or the movie claims to be critiquing a certain system, but at the same time, the audience is still allowed to indulge in sort of like a re regressive desire. Like, oh my God, it's so horrible what I'm watching. I can't believe I'm seeing this. But of course, you're enjoying the film or TV show that you're watching and you continue to watch it anyway, right? So I thought that was a really interesting point. And it, of course, made me think about horror movies, which I think sort of fit that description to a T. Um, in the case of horror movies, unlike Handmaid's Tale, like most of the time horror movies are not actually uh, explicitly critiquing some sort of system of oppression. Although, you know, we, we do see horror movies like that and we will talk about that in a second. Um, but, you know, why do we watch horror movies, right? Like, are we indulging some sort of regressive pleasure or desire? I think that you can make that case in a way because, and, and I think that you can see that most clearly in the fact that people in horror movies, the characters in horror movies are very often dumb, insufferable, or just like very flat. So it's not actually a tragedy when, you know, they, they meet their end. And I think that is kind of part of the pleasure of watching horror movies. Um, and I have more to say about this, but I want to get your guys' thoughts first, uh, just to kind of kick off. Um, do, do we watch horror movies because we're sadists? <laughs> um, yeah, probably on some level. Uh, I mean, there's definitely that part of us there that, that you know, we into and it's like and it's and it feels thrilling right the um it's it's like it's like almost like a rush of adrenaline when you're doing something wrong it's uh, you know engaging in a taboo i mean that's what's like you know part of the thrill of like sexual taboos and things like that like is that you're doing the whole point is that you're doing something wrong um that you're not supposed that is not right correct or moral or anything like that um and that unleashes uh, within your body like a just a, a hit of adrenaline and dopamine and you're just like this shit is fucking crazy um and i think that that's part of the it's, it's a version of like why we also um i don't know like like spicy food or something you know where it's like it's it's in in, in engaging in a sort of safe version of pain sadism on mm -hmm. ourselves that doesn't leave any marks or anything like that unleash it like releases adrenaline um and and that's why we love it yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it just is the case, and not to like, go too much into psychology, either. But like, I think it just is the case that like, we all have an aggressive drive inside of us that 
um, to some extent. Uh, and the, the whole thing is that like, it's, these are like drives. Again, I don't want to go too much of this, but like drives are like unconscious processes. And so like, that's where, like when you have a desire for something, a desire might actually be for something that you consciously are like, I really don't actually want that thing, but you keep getting drawn to it or you keep thinking about it. It keeps coming back to you. Um, and so it's, you can have desires and fantasies that are actually uh, really kind of disgusting and gross or unpleasurable or unwanted. Um, in fact, I bet most of you do have those because that's just kind of what it's like to be a person. And so in our, especially in our society, like you are socialized in a way where like these kind of things end up inevitably inside of us. And so I do think horror films uh, it's like one of the very few ways in society where we can like appropriately like face these things, like, but at a distance that we're not, we don't actually have to deal with the actual fantasy or desire that you have in your head, but you can, you can momentarily, I think like the fact that these characters are typically so flat, it's they're effectively a mask for us that mm-hmm. like that we put on that we get to be the really superficial flat character with no history, no dimensionality. And, and now we're experiencing the really horrible, bad thing or the rush of that experience. And it, it kind of alleviates some of that pressure that is building up inside of you where you go, okay, I can, I can feel this. And now I can go back to being a normal person where I no longer yeah. have to actually deal with that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, just to add on to that, I think that part of the transgressive pleasure of the horror movie is not just the sadism, but it's masochism too, right? Like I have a good friend who hates horror movies. And whenever I ask her if she wants to watch one with me, she's like, why would I spend an hour and a half crying and shaking? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, like horror movies, like they, like the adrenaline doesn't just come from like being excited that, you know, there's like blood and gore like happening. It's also being af- literally afraid. Like a good horror movie yeah. is one that actually is scary, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, uh, if it doesn't, if it doesn't scare you, if it doesn't make you feel something, I mean, that's the other thing I think like is like we're so numb, you know, mm-hmm. by the torrent of content all the time, you know, and um, the horror genre when you watch it actually kind of makes you feel something. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, these days it's not easy to come by. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like back in the day, you could be like you could feel something by playing with sticks or whatever, uh, <laughs> you know, back in now we can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now you can't yeah. do that. I, I want to quickly shout out uh, a book I really love. It's called Men, Women, and Chainsaws, and it's by the film studies professor Carol Clover. I think it's actually pretty pretty famous. Um, it's an academic work that's like grounded in Lacanian psychoanalysis. So like, I'm, I'm going to try to paraphrase it. It'll, of course, be pretty crude. Uh, but Carol Clover was the theorist who came up with the term final girl, which I think lots of people are probably pretty familiar with. The final girl, of course, is a horror movie trope where, you know, the last woman standing after all the other teens have been killed off is you know, I, I think like Laurie Strode in Halloween is is the quintessential example, right? And actually, Laurie Strode is such a final girl that like the Halloween franchise is still going on. There's a Halloween movie this year, and she's still alive. So, and it's a huge like box office success, like mm-hmm. a huge. Oh, is it? They, they, yeah, the movie costs like they they make them for very cheap. They I mean, it costs mm-hmm. like twenty million dollars, and I think it made fifty million dollars in its first weekend, which mm-hmm. was like a, you know astonishing. Whereas like other movies that were supposed to be bigger kind of disappointed and mm-hmm. whatever like the halloween kills movie which got very bad reviews um sure. critically panned uh was a massive massive uh box office success in a Great. year where box office successes are hard to come by 
I haven't seen it yet. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. I probably will soon. Uh, I saw the last Halloween, uh, which I think was called like Halloween, like 2020 extreme or so, I don't know. It was like, it was, it was, you know, again, an installment of like Michael Myers is long dead or so we thought, but like, here he is again. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was in that one too. Um, but uh, what I wanted to say about the final girl is, uh, you know, Carol Clover is really, her work is really interesting because she writes in the early 90s. So this is after like a big wave of 80s, 80s slasher horror movies like Halloween and um, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and all the faves. And her argument is with regard to the final girl is essentially that... Um, Lots of people tend to look at these 80s slasher movies as movies that are like a little bit sexist, right? I mean, they're usually, you usually see, you know, like slutty co-eds like running around and like getting killed and like on the surface that does seem pretty sexist. But her argument is that because the protagonist or because the last woman standing is always this final girl, uh, it sort of has the opposite effect where, uh, you know, Back in the 80s, the kind of predominantly teenage male audience for these movies would actually end up coming to identify with this female protagonist. So there was kind mm -hmm. of like a little bit of a gender reversal or like gender subversion going on in those movies. Um, and I really like that interpretation. Um, I think that it's true. I will say also that I, I know that a lot of women say they identify with the killers a lot of the time. So I think that it's not as like, I'm not saying anything about myself. I just like, I'm just telling you what I've heard. <laughs> mm, I've heard that too. I mean, I, I, I listen, I, I, I work for a studio uh, and I run their podcasting. And if you look at podcasting uh, listening stats, dominated absolutely by true crime uh, genre, usually a man killing women. Um, and the audience is like overwhelmingly women, like yeah. a degree that that is, and I don't know what it says about the contemporary woman, but that is the, the fact of the listenership is absolutely true. Um, no, and what, what you're talking about the, um, you know, the gender subversions of, uh, of those, that era of horror movies. I mean, I think that uh, one of my favorite movies we were talking about it before was is Carrie, the the Brian De Palma film, um, which came out in 1976 at the sort of height of the ERA debate, uh, you know, women's lib, um, all that thing, all that stuff, and um, you know, some people have criticized that movie as being kind of misogynist for the for the opening scene in which. Uh, you know, Carrie, all the women are naked in the, in the, in the, in the girl's locker room, high school girls naked in the girl's locker room. And then Carrie gets her first period and, and has, and, you know, right. kind of freaks out and then they all make fun of her. Um, but it, you know, it, you could also look at it as a kind of ironic, uh, ironic commentary. Like the fact that Carrie has like this kind of inert power, like or in, in like this kind of insane power within her um, could be kind of like a ironic, making fun of people who are like afraid of women in the ERA mm, yeah. kind of time and the women, like people who are like, oh, you can't, you can't let a woman like, you know, they got like some freaky shit going on in there, you know, like, and, uh, and Ryan Palmer was like, yeah, they do. Yeah. I feel the same way about Rosemary's baby, honestly. I mean, obviously, you know, lots of people don't like Roman Polanski. Um, he, you know, he has, we all know the history of Roman Polanski, uh, Rosemary's baby, a classic movie. I mean, like, I still love it, obviously. Um, and I think that much like Carrie, there is an interpretation of that movie that's very focused on, like, you know, the horror of the female body, like pregnancy, like, what is it? Like, an alien thing growing inside you. Like, what's going on with ladies? Like, you know, like, what 
what's Mia Farrow doing? Why did she cut her hair? Like something's really amiss. But I think at the same time, like you were saying about Carrie, um, it seems like a lot of that movie is actually about uh, subverting that fear, right? It's like, what is the fear? It's Satan. Surprise. Well, it's also... Like the problem isn't women. (laughs) Right. I mean, the other thing is that part of the problem is the way that, like, you know, we're kind of already and we'll continue more to kind of talk about, like, how most kind of typical liberals approach horror and, and, you know, these kind of critiques of, like, is it feminist, anti-feminist? Is it, you know, is it indulging in, you know, the worst of us? Is it, like, promoting bad thoughts or, like, bad, you know, fantasies that, like, people shouldn't be engaged in? You know, like, if you show them violence, will they then become violent or something violent against women or whoever. Um, But like, the thing is like, you have to start with the fact that, you know, we are highly socialized creatures that were born probably, you know, uh, underdeveloped by the time we're, you know, we still have to be highly dependent on our, on our parents for the first few years of our lives. And then, you know, throughout childhood um, in a different capacity, but, you know, we, the things that affect us in life, the, the way that we are actually socialized, the way that our unconscious is, is created over time, like how, how it's developed through experiences that you really don't have much control over. You know, someone does something to you or you witness something, you, you know, you, you know, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, you know, something doesn't make sense and you're trying to make sense of it. All these, th- everyone has some combination of these things that have largely shaped how they actually like what you know what are they attracted to what are they fearful of what are they fantasizing about whatever um like that's the the complexity of of like the human brain and of like the unconscious and and so i think like fantasy you know like why some people really like it and some people or horror rather why some people really like horror and some people really don't i mean i think it, a lot of it just comes down to that weird configuration and for you know for women you know that like you know, standard, you know, like the actual, like how women are treated in society has changed pretty radically over the last few decades. And so the fact that like that transformation has coupled with a very strange psychological reaction, both within women and in men, and is then expressed in horror, which is largely there to, it's not that functionally is there, but it ends up kind of capturing a lot of, you know, how do we understand these, these changes that are like fearful or, Um, or strange, the taboos, the things that like, we don't typically have any other outlet to talk about in society. Otherwise, um, yeah, but then it, you know, you get the weird, you know, this weird stew of things where, you know, yeah, like, it it makes total sense to me why, like, you know, certain, you know, a lot of women, I don't know how many women, but a lot of women would be interested in true crime stories, or would identify with killers. It's like, it's because all all our unconsciouses are weird. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, just to and that, I can just say to... all this and preface, I'm still like a vulgar Marxist class reductionist. So just <laughs> we can hold both oh, ideas yeah. in, in our head at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cla- yeah, Kale's still really vulgar. He just also yeah. likes The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I do want to ask you guys if you, you feel like horror um, sort of simply reflects, I guess, the collective social anxieties of its time period. Because one horror subgenre that I'm not a fan of, but that I was thinking about recently is torture porn, uh, like the Hostel and like Chain, uh, or uh, sorry, Saw and like um, 
uh, what else, like human centipede franchises that kind of exploded in popularity, like post 2000. Um, I believe it was a New York magazine critic who called, who, who dubbed this subgenre torture porn. And I, I can't remember who it was, but somebody pointed out, uh, you know, at a later date that these movies are actually coinciding with the time period when the U S is actually torturing people yeah. <laughs> like in the post nine yeah. 11, you know, like Iraq hellscape. So I don't know. That's pretty interesting. I think. Yeah, no, I, well, it's, I find it, the torture thing, uh, I never was a fan of those movies either. Um, yeah. It just seemed, uh, it seemed kind of um, like it lacked a certain depth or something that that I found just to be like, or like it was just so too obvious, like what they were going to do. Let me just up the ante as much as possible on this specific thing rather than anything thematic or, you know, story wise. It's just like, what is the most possible painful gross thing i can portray on camera we're just going to keep upping the ante on that including making like three human centipede movies <laughs> <Right>. um <laughs> but uh i just watched did you guys watch paul schrader's the card counter with oscar isaac that came out this year no, not yet. no i really want like, yeah it is you have to watch it like tonight it is like yeah. it's like the best movie this year by a lot by a lot and the, the whole premise is that oscar isaac was was an abu Ghraib, one of the abu Ghraib criminals mm-hmm. and yeah. now he's yeah you know, dealing with it or whatever. Um, and it, it, you know, it just kind of what, what moved me a lot about that movie was that we, we know like in the words of Obama, like we told her, we tortured some folks, you know, um, so we heard. know that like, yeah, you and I, we all know that we've seen it in the news or whatever, but like, have we really stopped and thought about it for, for, for like more than we probably want to like, no. Right. And like Paul Schrader's like, no, no, you should stop and think about it. Mm-hmm. And then he like shows us the scenes in Abu Ghraib and they're like absolutely unsettling and yeah. horrifying and very well done in a very kind of unique way. Um, and it, I like, I left that movie thinking like, yeah, we just kind of totally glossed over that. Didn't we? We just yeah. kind of moved on that we did mm-hmm. that and, mm-hmm. uh, and no one thinks about it. And he's like, no, no, we got to think about it. Um, and the torture porn might be the torture porn genre might be a way for us to just kind of be like, Oh, that's not that bad. We can watch a movie about it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I think, I mean, like, my attitude on a lot of movies and art, I don't want to say all art, but I think the bulk of it is just very reflective of the society that it's in, that it's being created in. It's not, most art is not like truly progressive in the sense that it's like trying to like propose something else. It's really just kind of highlighting like what are actual, you know, uh, ideas or, um, you know, or like what, what is like ideologically present today or whenever the movie is made. And so I think, I think, yeah, I, I basically agree with Nando that I think a lot of the, the torture porn stuff is basically just like a way of like avoiding the actual torture that exists that um it's it's a way to like understand it in like a a really warped and kind of like it's um because it doesn't yeah it doesn't you don't no one leaves a torture porn movie thinking like wow like we need to do something about torture (laughs) right yeah (laughs) we should we should try to live in a world where people don't torture one right right but but it also again like you know it, it both deals with the social, but it also just is kind of the, like, you know, you know, again, our drives and desires and fantasies and whatever, which are also socially created to a great extent, but, you know, like how it then affects us individually of like how we then end up wanting, or how we end up aggressive or, you know, like wanting to hurt others. And it, it kind of, you know, it plays with that part of us as well. And, um, 
but it's just again it's it's just it's not art can't really like you're there's not ever going to be a movie that like is so successful at depicting torture that everyone who sees it is like we, we are must now shut down Guantanamo to, or, yeah 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 like come out like organizers <laughs> right that, right yeah right so on on that note um i guess the other thing that i wanted to bring up with regard to horror movies before we get to Slavoj, which you've all been waiting for, is uh, the, this, what I think is a kind of new strain of horror movie, which I call woke horror. I mean, just for lack of a better word. And it's the type of horror movie that really wants to make some sort of social commentary and like teach you a lesson. And I think that um, the genesis of this horror was, you know, a few years ago, we had kind of a wave of like smart horror movies, like The Duke and It Follows. And I really like both of those movies, by the way. And um, I think that with those movies, because there was some some foregrounding of social commentary that did kind of lead the way for then a whole host of other movies to be like, well, what if we like dialed it up to here and like really said something about society? So I, I think the movie that is probably uh, most representative of this genre, which by the way, is a movie I don't hate, is Get Out. Um, I liked it when I saw it, uh, but I also noticed, um, like, after it came out, um, at the time I was working at, like, you know, this liberal think tank where all of my colleagues were sort of people who, like, thought that West Virginians should be denied health insurance because they voted for Trump. You know, like, that was just, like, the general right. political milieu. Um they they hated horror movies, but they really like they all really liked Get Out because it was like if I like Get Out, it it shows something about me as a person. Like you know, like liking like it shows that I'm down with like something lowbrow, yeah. aka a horror movie. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm really smart because like I was able to like I don't know like see this social commentary and like like I it's it's really good, yeah. you guys. You, you got to do an anti racism. You got to do an anti-racism by going to the movies. Yeah, yeah. You realize that you're not like the Bradley Whitford character. You know, yeah. you're not like one of those liberals who's like, you know, fake progressive or something, mm -hmm. you know, um, that you're something else. You're cooler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have a much worse uh, woke horror movie example that I want to dive into because it's like so over the top. But before I do, do you guys have any thoughts on Get Out? Like, I thought it was good, but I... And, like, you shouldn't hate a movie just because, like, people at a liberal think tank like it, obviously. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I like some movies that, that the libs like, too. But uh, Get Out, Get Out, I'm with you. Like, I thought it was good, not great. But the thing about Get Out was that it was, um, like, a huge, absolutely massive box office success given mm -hmm. its budget. Like, it made, I think it cost, like, $3 million to make, and it made over $100 million. Uh, yeah. Launched an entire you know Blumhouse just then made like a bunch of other very good movies um including some good horror movies like I mm -hmm. mean the the hollow the hollow the no sorry the invisible man uh oh yeah uh, movie with, that the made Elizabeth with Elizabeth Moss, Moss. yeah mm -hmm. also kind of in the woke uh horror genre and that it's like about like pretty good you know gaslighting or whatever yeah right. um it was good but uh but they they made a, a whole sort of but the, that's the thing about Get Out so I think that once Get Out was this huge box office success they were like oh this is the thing we just do like a horror movie and we make it about like, you know, microaggressions or whatever. And, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. bam, hundred million dollars. Yeah. 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 I, I also, I mean, I liked get out. I liked it when I saw it, obviously the reaction to it's pretty obnoxious. Um, I, it's very clear that, uh, you know, he spent a good deal of time trying to like do the social commentary. And I kind of wish he spent a little bit more time, like, 
thinking through like how to do a horror movie because like he doing the ends scares. Up, by the end of it it's just he's just kind of like one horror trope after another and it's like yeah. okay you you got your setup great because it's all about like i'm gonna show you know i'm gonna provide this social commentary about what it's like to be a black person in america and you know these like rich white liberals who voted for obama but whatever like he has all that and like it's fun it's like it's it's good for a movie why not uh but then by the end it just kind of i don't feel like he he kind of pulls it all together as well as he could have but and again i I just think like his priorities were pretty obvious and you know whatever it it turned out fine um Yeah. yeah it just it sucks that like that's that's how that's how we make art and that's what people like well i mean on that note um i want to bring up another like just over the top example of this new genre of horror movie which i think actually is like doing a disservice not just to horror movies but to like social commentary and to film in general the thing i'm thinking of is the 2019 remake of black christmas i don't know if you guys uh know or are fans of or remember the 1975 black christmas i think it's actually 74 but it's canadian so it was released in the u.s in 75 but they have a different it's, calendar. Calendar. it's yeah. a different canadian yeah, exactly the canadian <laughs> The Canadian calendar, calendar, I mean, yeah, you know, you know how all that goes. Um, no, but Black Christmas, I mean, it's it's a really good movie. The original one, I mean, it's, you know, a, just a classic. I think it actually came, I mean, obviously, like, temporally, it came before, like, the wave of 80s slashers. So it was kind of like a proto slasher. But it's, you know, about a sorority house and a bunch of girls who are, like, staying in the house over Christmas break. They start to get, like, disgusting, threatening phone calls. Surprise, the killer's in the house already. So <gasps> this was kind of, yeah. So this is kind of like one of the original, like the call is coming from inside the house, Uh, you know, murder and mayhem ensues and a final girl lives. So it's very, very standard, uh, standard slasher fare, which, you know, obviously lots of people see as lowbrow. Um, And I want to read a quote from the New York Times from their review of the original Black Christmas in 1975 because they hated it. So they write. Black Christmas, which landed on local screens a year after its release in Canada, where it was produced, is a whodunit that begs the question of why it was made. The answer is hard to come by. This moody depiction of the Christmas slangs of university sorority sisters and their house mother, among others, is as murky as the script, which dotes largely on obscenities that are no more pointed than the violence, dull direction, and pedestrian performances." That's harsh. That's like a, like, I don't, I feel like people don't even write movies, movie reviews like that anymore. Like that's mean, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. No, now they would never say something like that. They'd be like, well, you know, they'd be, you know, it could have been better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they can't say anything that mean because if yeah. not, they'll, you know, everyone, I don't know, everyone, you can't, you can't write mean things anymore. Yeah. I, I was trying, I think it's, when I looked online, it just said, basically it's the editors of the New York times. I don't know exactly who wrote it, but like Pauline Kale, who's like probably the most important film critic of like the second half of the 20th century was like the meanest critic. Like she would just yeah. write, like if she, and she would, she didn't really have a lot of rhyme or reason. It was just like, I like this. I thought this was great. This is good art. That crap. It's awful. Terrible. And would just like, but like very precisely, like just rip your movie apart if she hated it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. In any event, um, I, I kind of like to see a mean review. So like whoever wrote that, the New York Times, like even though I love Black Christmas, whoever at the New York Times wrote that, like props to you. But I just want to contrast that with, so in 2019, like I said, there was a remake of Black Christmas that weirdly got three reviews in the New York Times. 
all of them were like overwhelmingly positive. Uh, and as you can see, there's one of them uh, that calls <laughs> the remake of Black Christmas a quote, me too slasher. And basically what this director did was in her remake, the, the you know killer was no longer just like a deranged psychopath calling from upstairs. It was a group of fraternity brothers who just wanted to oppress women who were getting too uppity. So let's watch a clip actually. Aren't you tired of fighting against your true nature, right? Just because we're taking our rightful place behind them doesn't mean that we aren't needed. They needed me to collect the objects from the girls so the pledges would know who to go after. I have the final in 10 minutes and I can't find my diva cup. Thanks for the comb, by the way. How could you do that to your sisters? I'm helping women. Everything is so out of whack. It's so much easier this way. You are a traitor! This is your last chance, right? You can join me. We can be good women. Or... Or we will bring you to your knees and you will beg for mercy. Still creating problems, huh, right? You see, you were given a chance. You were taught how to grow into a proper woman, but you refused to listen. Now it's time to decide. Are you gonna bow to the king when I say bow? Bow. Said bow, bitch. You need a reminder of our power? Fine. everything that I was supposed <laughs> He'll do worse than that to you. Your body, your choice. So I'm sorry, you guys. I just had to show like all like two, three minutes of that because have you ever seen anything just so bludgeoning and over the top? It's like the girl who sold out her sisters, she was bad, but it didn't even save her. Do you see what's happening? Do you see what's happening? Do you understand the lesson? The men don't like powerful women. Now Do you I get it. it? Do you get it? <laughs> yeah, go back I, to the, can you, Kel, can you go back to the, uh, the reviews? Because I want to read one of them, one of the subheads, because it's like, I think it's particularly revealing of like film criticism. Sophia Takal's film isn't particularly scary, <laughs> but it has plenty on its mind. It's like, this movie sucks. Yeah. But like, I the, agree. Did it you had get a the message. lesson? Yeah. yeah I, 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 took some, I took some notes and uh, I'm going to apply them later. So 
I'm sorry to say, I saw this movie in the theater and I almost walked out at this particular scene because it was just, it was like insulting, you know? Like, don't yeah. treat the audience like we're children who need to be taught what social justice is. Um, I, I mean, I was with, I was at the movies with someone, so like I couldn't, or I was like, it, it would be shitty to leave. Um, and the movie was almost over at that point. But like, like I said, how insulting, right? I mean, I don't know. I think like middle class libs are children who need to be taught what social justice is. So, <laughs> hence the three reviews in the New York Times, I guess. Yeah. Did you guys watch Promising Young Woman? Yeah, with Carrie Mulligan. Yeah. Very it similar. Won the, yeah, very similar. But it won the Academy Award for best screenplay. Um, and I remember, like, when I watched it, I thought I was going to be like either you know, funny or subversive or like follow through on its like kind of horror premise, which they kind of set up, but they then they don't follow through. She just gives them a good stern talking to. Um, and I, I just found it again, also so insulting in, in that it treats the audience like absolute children, which like every single scene is like, this is the message in the scene that you just watched. Yeah. Move on to the next scene. Now we're going to talk about uh, this kind of new message that we're going to tell you about you know very blatantly and uh on the nose at lee um and it's it's just like i don't know why like that's become the thing now like no one can do they just they don't trust people to get any sort of subtlety or irony or i don't know like something that's just not just completely spelled out by a character like oh your body your choice <laughs> you see what i did there you know like i mean i wonder to what to what extent it's just like trying to to hold back just like really bad stupid reviewers who are you know like extremely woke reviewers who like don't get what's going on and like you really need to spell it out so no one gets offended and so therefore everyone can be like yeah no, it's it's good it's like it's positive it's about like it's the scary things but it's positive so you can you can go see this and you can like feel good about yourself and you're not like because and we've talked about this before but just in the, the ways in which like liberals like think that like looking at art or movies is like somehow like it determines or is like it has to be in line with like their moral judgment their moral values their morality whatever and right and that their consumption of a piece of art or film or whatever is like says something about their moral character yeah it's yeah and it becomes like it's the whole consumerist thing where it's like Oh, but if you if you give money to to the people who made the bad art, then you encourage them to make more bad art, and it's like that's not how this works. Like the things that are like given to you on the market are like the consumer preference is is like it only matters at like the at the most kind of macro aggregate level. Like you as individuals saying, eh, I don't think this is like unless you can organize with people like a massive boycott or something, and even then they're still going to give you whatever they can turn a profit. So like they, that your personal, like, Oh, I'm doing, I'm buying or not buying. I'm supporting or not supporting uh, because of moral reason, whatever really doesn't have an effect on, on this stuff. Um, But I, I bet like they, again, they probably are worried to some extent. I don't know. I don't know to what extent, but worried to some extent of like, woke people like woke reviewers like giving it like bad reviews and like hurting you know its box office performance and so you just have to hit the so on the head for people um because because that's who ends up kind of the unfortunate like the, the fact is that like you know as free as our markets might seem you know you still are going to have these kinds of people that are going to like have way outsized influence in like market decisions and and so 
Yeah, I mean, when when everything is market, everything is like neoliberal marketized, you're going to get stuff that's just so uh, just like debased and like appeals to the most common denominator because all you really get, all the studios really care about is like, I mean, I don't know if it's good art or not, but like, does it give us money? Is this going to bring in like more revenue than if we make this other creative decision? Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the woke reviewer. I mean, that's that's a real thing. Um, I, I, Nando, what do you? Because th- Nando, <laughs> I, I'm I'm watching Nando's expressions right now because like Nando does this shit, so I'm just I'm the outsider. No, I mean that's, Nando no, writes that's, woke reviews on the weekend. That's yeah, that's, yeah that's what I do. I, I'm secretly Noah Berlaski. That's my <laughs> alt. That's my Twitter alt. Uh, I write under a pseudonym. Uh, yeah, no, I mean I think that the uh, one of the one of the shifts that's happened in um culture creation is away from a free a more free market type of thing which is that like it used to be that you would either make a t- uh, movie or a tv show and it would have to sink or swim on its own um like by putting asses in the seats in a the movie theater and it was pretty ruthless like you know if audiences rejected it audiences rejected it and then whatever um now because everything goes on to these platforms and no individual um, piece of what we would call art or content, for to use a dirty word, um, it doesn't really matter if it sinks or swim on its own. Um, it doesn't even matter how many people individually watch it. Um, what matters is how much kind of buzz it generates mm-hmm. and how many New York mag articles it generates, uh, or, or in the case of Black Christmas, New York Times reviews. Um, in that it would get it might get people to you know see that it's being talked about and uh and they would subscribe to the platform you know it used to be like a movie you had to get actual people to go to a theater and and then you would know exactly how that movie did it was it was in a weird way that encouraged uh better stuff now mm-hmm. they're just kind of making this very everything is like fine nothing is like super bad but nothing is great because they don't need to as long as they make it okay and and if they can hit a few kind of cultural touch points and get a few think pieces out of it that's fine all the better and i just want to add it's not because most people have like bad tastes in art or something i think that's the sometimes it, it the argument turns into you know bad movies are made because most people like bad things uh and i don't think that's the case really at all i think it's i think it's entirely just like it's these weird the way the weird specific ways in which like these companies decide they're in fact going to make a profit like that's that's the consideration um i think most people yeah. like to the extent that they have time to even watch art like they people know you know people are probably going to like pick better stuff than than worse stuff it's just like you don't have many choices you don't have a lot of time to like enjoy art and and think about art and like that's we want a society where more people can actually spend their time doing that kind of stuff All right, so that was a political economy of woke horror. I think on that note, uh, let's go to the Zizek interview. Um, Again, uh, we talked with Zizek about the Russian Revolution. Uh, Zizek, as I said before, is a force of nature who cannot be contained. So um, actually, I don't know. Opium wars. We got to. He talked about the opium war. You asked him, like, hey, what about the Russian Revolution? Let me tell you about the opium wars. There's a lot about the opium uh, wars. Um, There's. Quite a lot about Lenin. Um, Kale, did we put in the part about Trotsky? Or, sorry, he yeah. said something at the very end about Trotsky. But actually, he mentioned. Of course, he mentioned Trotsky. He wants you to know that Trotsky was a very important general in the Russian Revolution. So um, I've heard. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know if you guys noticed, in honor of the Russian Revolution, I put my copy of October behind me on the bookshelf. Uh, so if you... Mm. <laughs> right, oh, sorry, right there. Um, yeah. uh, if, you know, if you guys are interested in kind of a primer of the Russian Revolution, um, this is a really good one. Uh, China Mayville is, uh, I think, usually a sci-fi author, um, but he... It, I, I mean, the, the October isn't a fictionalization. It's it's basically the events as they unfolded, um, but it's written in his style, you know, so it's pretty good. Uh, and yeah, I guess on that note, uh, let's go to Zizek. Again, uh, you will also hear his thoughts on Squid Game and Dune, so you'll have to stick around to the end for that. Um, and I think when we come back, we will take a few questions. So if you have any uh, related to horror movies or I don't know, whatever we talk about with Zizek, uh, put them in the chat and um, we'll get to them when we come back. All right. We are back with Slavoj Zizek, who, of course, was last with us on the Jacobin Show on Bastille Day to talk about the French Revolution. It's now October, soon to be November. So, of course, we have to talk about the Russian Revolution. Before we talk about October, we, of course, have to talk about February. Uh, but before we talk about February, I think we should actually start with World War I. Uh, Slavoj, welcome to the show. Uh, I know that you have a lot to say about the Russian Revolution, and I definitely want to specifically ask you about the period between February and October in a minute. Um, but we were talking before the show, and you mentioned that it's, it's basically impossible, of course, to understand the events that we'll be talking about in a minute without talking about World War I. Uh, so, so when we're thinking about the Russian Revolution, where should we begin, and why should we start with World War One? Uh, because uh, we we tend to forget today, obsessed as we are with Hitler, World War Two, Holocaust, and so on, that how important World War One was. Before World War One, only in Western Europe, of course. There was for 50, 60 years a period of relative peace, progress, even gradual good reforms. Uh, Bismarck, of all guys, in Germany introduced uh, uh, first retirement plans, elements of social security, suffragette feminist movement in uh, in United Kingdom and so on. And the enigma, even today for historians, is how comes that then, all of a sudden, 1914, it exploded into a tragedy. Of course, this tragedy was preparing itself from before. But here things get complex. Do you know that for 20 years before 1914, even more, uh, everybody was talking about possible European conflict, but nobody took the possibilities seriously. Uh, uh, it's kind of a, you know, rationally, you see it may happen, but you don't believe it really can happen. Although, on the other hand, there were some absolute geniuses, and since usually people uh, dismiss angles, as you know, the poor stupid guy marks the true genius, uh, one should emphasize here, and Maybe I even already mentioned in some previous show, shows here, but because we, the remaining half Marxist, whatever you call us, like to, uh, we are often reproached how, okay, some interesting theories in Marx, but usually they are uh, a mess as far as we go into empirical predictions. Do you know what absolute genius Engels was in a letter from 1882? He wrote to a journalist that, 
the way things look, uh, in a couple of decades, there will be an all European war. The cost will be 10 million lives, dead corpses. You know what's today the official number? 9,800,000. Then he said that in the, uh, Germany will probably lose and it will be France and United Kingdom against Germany and on the other side, Russia against Germany. And uh, he said, maybe the result will be Angus, a revolution in Russia. And then comes the true stroke of the genius. He adds that uh, if Germany loses the war, it's a high probability that in around two decades, there will be another. <laughs> it's breathtaking. Engels had an incredible uh, practical sense. No, we Marxists are not the stupid guys who have our dreams and so on. It was so... Uh, 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 all this, even Lenin saw this clearly, that there is a chance. He was nervous. Although at the beginning, we must admit, Lenin was surprised. We all know the well-known story of the big betrayal of European social democracy. A part of two parties, Russian Bolsheviks, and one must say this because we all know when you say Serbia, you think about Milosevic and so on, and uh, Serb social democrats were the only two social democracies which voted against war credits, didn't fall into this patriotic, uh, torrent, whatever. <laughs> so, you know the story, just to get it clear how, what a surprise this was, that when Lenin got the German, he was already in Switzerland, I don't know where, the, the newspapers announcing the German social democracy voted for the war credits, he was sure that these were fake news, that secret services printed these newspapers, that it couldn't happen, and so on and so on. But then Lenin, did what in the moment of deepest crisis and defeat every great leftist does. He moved to a secluded place, uh, 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 Switzerland, and started begin reading Hegel. <laughs> oh, God, I think, no? And Etienne Balibar, in a good analysis, demonstrated how what we, it's a nice paradox, what we usually perceive as Hegel's, sorry, as uh, Lenin's uh, opportunism, like we should never forget, but we'll come to this later, that uh, Lenin knew how to analyze the situation and find big uh, weak leaks. Like for Lenin, uh, the motto was not proletarian revolution. The motto was peace and freedom, free, uh, and, uh, freedom and land to the farmers, and so on, you know. So uh, he saw an opportunity, Lenin. Uh, especially he saw the big failure of the social, uh, of the, uh, social democracy. Maybe just to finish with this World War I, you know why this is important? Because we tend to forget today with all this focus, and it is an indescribable horror of Holocaust, World War II, what horrors were nonetheless happening in the, in the 19th century, century, when imperialism was fully blowing, progressing, and so on. 
like, uh, sorry if I repeat myself here, uh, but it's so important to know this, like, when people say, but never there were such mechanized mass murders and so on. Yeah, but are we just aware, if we look at them from today's perspective, are we aware of the indescribable horror, for example, of the Opium War, 1842-44 in China? What people don't know, they usually think yeah, China was a country in inertia, weakened already. No, in 1820, China was by far the strongest economy in the world. Not per capita, it was United Kingdom, but brutal altogether. And you know, it was the second strongest economy in the world, India, hmm. at that point. And then it was the result of colonization that first India went to ruin. It's also not true what some say, but nonetheless, British colonization to India brought uh, organization and some no. In 19th century, there were much stronger hungers and chaos under British colonization. They just learned, did what they already learned in Ireland, how to simply isolate the part where hunger is. But let's not lose time with this. What I want to say is that what happened, my God, is that then it was the big business uh, of exchange tea for opium. The British, to be brutal, didn't like English, sorry, didn't like uh, Indian tea. They preferred the Chinese tea. To pay it, they were selling opium to China. And it was an incredible human catastrophe. I mean, millions of people addicted and so on. So then the Chinese emperor, a relatively progressive young guy, wrote to Queen Victoria, pleading her, look, my, 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 my society is destroyed. She even didn't answer him. So he just prohibited the import of opium. Declaration of war from uh, England, some other countries. You know with what excuse? And I'm coming to my joke. It's incredible. The excuse was that uh, free trade is the basis of civilization. So if you prohibit free trade, you make a step into barbarism, and it's a duty of civilized nation, by, even by a war, to, to bring you back into, into shared market. Now, you notice the result of this. Uh, in 20 years later, around 1845-50, do you know that Chinese brutal product fell by two-thirds. What was the strongest economy? It was simply chaotic, impoverished, and so on. Okay, I will not go into details. Just one more thing is worth mentioning here. Sorry, I cannot resist saying this. It's a beautiful sarcasm. Uh, when people tell me, but okay, things were done like this at that point, you know, my answer is this one. Uh, uh, but imagine, since humanitarians like to measure the humanitarian record of other countries with today's standards. Okay, let's apply today's standards to United Kingdom. And I like this dream. I once used this in Mexico, I got an applause. Today, the big bad guy, guys are cartels from Colom uh, uh, Col uh, uh, Colombia and Mexico. What if they were to exert a force on their country to declare war 
uh, countries so that Mexico and Colombia would declare war on the United States for trying to prevent the peaceful export of opium <laughs> and other drugs. So that's what was done at that mm-hmm. point. We, when we uh, are so focused on 20th century horrors, we tend to lose from sight the absolutely breathtaking horror of it. That's uh, okay. Let's not get lost. But what I, what my point is, this one. It wasn't just the war. It was the end of a certain model of development to which even Engels. Now comes the relatively bad news from Engels. Uh, 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 a trap into which even Engels got caught when in around 1800, towards the end of his life, 91-2, he wrote a well-known uh, introduction, I forgot to which text, I think Class Warfare in France, where he says, maybe, it was the time when a German social democracy was winning votes, maybe there even we will even not need a revolution, maybe simply, gradually, we will win. On, by voting, and there will be a peaceful tradition. Another mistake of Engels, which is especially actual for us today, is that he was obsessed with standard image of who is a proletarian. You know, that's an interesting analysis in every epoch. One, one specific strata becomes the symbol of proletarian. At that time, I would say it was either steel workers or miners or something like that. Like that's the true working class. And uh, Engels didn't see enough how already at that point, third world exploitation and things like this were integral part of capitalism. The only way to understand capitalism is not, not to focus on this most developed modern proletariat, but to include all those, to use terms of David Harvey, whose work is non-valorized. It's women, it's those whose uh, whose environment is ruined, and so on and so on. You know where uh, this Engels mistake uh, shows clearly? Like, till the end of his life, he was opposed I don't care about it. I'm not a nationalist, but our enemies here use this all the time. Engels was opposed to too much freedom for southern Slavs, Slovenes, Croats, mm-hmm. and so on. In a way, he was right to oppose it because he remember all European left remember how, without the interventions, not so much of Russia as also of Croats, Slovenes, who were on the emperor's side, the 1848 revolution may even had a chance to succeed. But what Engels, so Engels thought as he wrote, I don't care about Southern Slavs there, I only worry about them so that they will not prevent the success of another revolution with Europe. For, for Engels, the big point was the liberation, self-emancipation of the working class. And I think all these traditional, one has to, has to say this, Marxist vision, was also interrupted, disintegrated with World War I. It wasn't, this is just an aberration, then we will get that to the uh, 
to the old uh, 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 old class warfare and so on and so on. No, no, everything changed. And I think Lenin clearly saw this, that, the, that it's not just a short break, then we will return to old social democratic struggles and so on and so on. Lenin saw the fundamental change. And what is so interesting in Lenin is that he didn't regress already the relatively early Lenin into uh, some kind of a primitive anti-Eurocentric idea of Europe as such is corrupted. No, even towards the end of his life, when he saw the desperate situation in Russia, Lenin says, let's not dream about building socialism. Our task today is just to bring, even says in Eurocentric terms, you know, a little bit more of, haha, European civilization and so on to, to Russia and so on. But what Lenin clearly saw is that World War I was a break, that everything, everything changed, you know. And this is, if I may slowly progress now to your question, uh, this is what uh, guys whom I otherwise respect, even if they hate me, like uh, Noam Chomsky don't see. I, Remember listening to an interview by, uh, or even a podcast by Chomsky, who, as typical liberal leftists, no, says Bolsheviks did just were a small group who did a coup d'état. The true Marxists were the Mensheviks, who simply followed the official Marxist dogma, which is this succession of stages. No, the idea was how can Russia do a more radical revolution when they are not even properly in the bourgeois revolution. So the situation is not yet right. The first revolution, this meant February, must be a bourgeois revolution, bourgeois democracy, develop capitalism. We need to create the proletariat and then we will do it. Lenin, uh, first, this is not, incidentally, this is not an adequate image. Read history precisely of those months. And you see that, yes, on the one hand, Lenin may appear as a madman who, in his famous April thesis, saw and advocated the possibility of a revolution. But, he, but although, even at some point, the majority of the Bolshevik, uh, whatever it was called, Politburo, Central Committee members, although they, uh, although they, uh, uh, well, Bolsheviks were revolution. They thought Lenin is going crazy. Even his wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, wrote to I don't know whom is Vladimir Ilyich getting to the psychiatrist and so on, you know. But on the other hand, it's not just this. Uh, there was a magic moment when Lenin, far from being an isolated madman, building his paranoia construct revolution, got support from the base. There was so much desperate misery. People were so desperate that you couldn't tell them, look, guys, your time didn't yet come. Wait a little bit. It's in the next... You know, Lenin was here, although he would probably never admit it. Uh, Lenin was here already thinking at the level of Walter Benjamin that the big thing is... This was Benjamin's big obsession, to get rid of these gradual phases, uh, 
in of revolutionary movement. First this phase, then another phase. No, that's what Lenin learned in from Hegel, who is usually dismissed as the great uh, uh, <coughs> madman of <coughs> everything conceptual. No, precisely this <coughs> contingency and non-contemporaneity of philosophy, oh, sorry, of historical development. Yes, there are phases, but sometimes contradictions are get condensed in one situation, and then uh, Lenin, in a way, saw, although I'm also very critical on Marx, but Lenin also saw how uh, if, if in the long term you want to promote proletarian revolution, if you want to be faithful to this, moments come where the only thing to do is to say, no, another struggle is at this point crucial, more important than the proletarian struggle. And to cut short, don't be afraid <laughs> that I will go on and on. That's why uh, what Lenin made mistakes, we can talk about this later, but what I admire about him at this point at the beginning, before and then immediately after October Revolution, is that he was not in this empty sense, but effectively non-dogmatic. Do you know how many mm. parts of the official Marxist evolutionary dogma he violated? He made the revolution again by appeals to slogans, uh, 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 peace, land reform, and so on, which even had nothing specifically Marxist about them. But he saw at that point, that's how you, that's how you mobilize people. So uh, this is what I see, this uh, great, great in Lenin. This, this was an immense achievement, whatever, whichever horror later took place on behalf of Lenin. Yeah. A, this absolute distrust of simple evolutionary logic, like you know, step by step. No, Lenin saw clearly what now some post-colonial uh, guys like to emphasize that at some point, at some point, even conservative forces, not conservative in the bourgeois or feudal sense, but in the sense of old local traditions, can serve as a support for a radical break with the present. Because we should never forget that capitalism is not only trying to thwart every radical step forward, but it's also immensely destructive, as it were, backwards, towards traditional forms. Lenin saw, Lenin saw clearly all this. So this insight against evolutionary logic and this incredible sense to grab an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Lenin was, as Lukacs, who is also reproached for being dogmatic, in his book After History and Class Consciousness, Lenin, points out uh, Lenin is precisely not this evolutionary thinker, uh, general logic of history, let you know. Uh, Lenin uh, saw clearly that there is a unique chance in Russia, and that if they, Bolsheviks, miss that chance, the cause will be lost for decades, 30, 40, maybe 50 years, and so on. Mm -hmm. I, mm. This is what I admire with Lenin, and I will tell you why, and then I will stop. Because I think something similar happened 
uh, in, in 1990 in Europe, the decline or disintegration of these European communist regimes, I had no sympathy for them, but remember that at the same time, social democracy as we knew it, welfare state and so on and so on. And we need a similar, I know the term is crazy, radical opportunism today. Radical in the sense of we don't abandon, not by a bit our goal, but opportunism in the sense of you look around, you see where contradictions are, you grab, you grab the situation. Mm -hmm. That's the, the incredible sense needed more than ever today of Lenin. Yeah. And that, that's what I, uh, I always find striking is that, you know, he was both a, this man of letters, this very, you know, well, well-read, well-spoken, well, you know, excellent writer, thinker, et cetera, but also a man of action um, in a way that seems um, almost totally impossible to imagine today, uh, a, like a man like that, a man that is both, um, you know, an intellectual, for lack of a better term, and also this kind of incredible man of action that just seems like, totally anachronistic uh today totally impossible um you know i i i i just wonder like if you know why why was it possible back then and it's not now like why can't that kind of person exist I have now? my own uh, almost a conspiracy theory a mythic <laughs> theory you know that at that point especially the middle of europe a little bit of paris germany vienna was it's a primitive sociological theory was a miraculous place, Adorno, uh, uh, when he analyzes in some of his writings for Ovid, Vienna around 1900 and later, and says precisely because of a relative backwardness of the Austrian-Hungarian empire, because intelligent, active people didn't have a proper space in economy or in state apparatus to realize their potentials, you have this incredible explosion of geniuses there. Freud, modern painting, uh, uh, um, social theory, uh, 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 physics, uh, Einstein, and so on and so on. That it's, again, Lenin would have loved to do this analysis of how the very apparent backwardness of this Central European space, the backwardness which had its own traps, of course. Don't forget that Hitler is uh, from this space. Don't forget that uh, I learned this when I was in Linz, in the middle of Austria. Do you know that Hitler and Wittgenstein were visiting young Hitler and young Wittgenstein, the same high school, gymnasium, gymnasium there? And there is even a stupid theory, totally not right, that Hitler saw what a genius Wittgenstein is and out of envy became anti-Semite or whatever, you know. But I think you are pointing in the right direction. You see, that's the spirit of Lenin. Let's not say this is the progress of history. Oh, this is the most progressive part there think will happen. No, sometimes the true break comes precisely from the less developed part. As even mm. Hegel hinted and Marx knew, the top movement of philosophy 100 years ago was Germany, precisely because it missed the revolution, French revolution, and so on. You know, mm. that's, that's what, that, was, uh, that was the spirit of Lenin. Right. 
So I, I want to now ask about uh, some of the more controversial aspects of Lenin, which you alluded oh, to earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when we had you on Slavoj to talk about the French Revolution, um, you offered what I thought was a very interesting and useful corrective to some of the standard liberal narratives around the Jacobins and the terror and Robespierre. It's true. I mentioned this, I think. Sorry. If you are a humanitarian who thinks Robespierre went too far, Danton, no, it's proven now. Danton was corrupted. He was guilty. Yep, yep. Robespierre did nothing wrong. I'm paraphrasing a little. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tragedy. Badiou, Alain Badiou, my friend, who loves Jacobins, even admitted. Yeah. The, The problem with Robespierre was even that. He saw where the constant state of terror is leading, mm-hmm. and he was, in the last year of his reign, Robespierre, opposed with the idea how to limit terror. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he made a crucial mistake, because with terror, moderate by today's manner, he alienated, of course, the right wing. Mm-hmm. But then, in a desperate attempt to calm the situation to establish a balance, he also did a part of those Shansky lot, the left. And then he found himself in an empty space. Sorry, Mm -hmm. go on. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, when you you bring this up, and that, of course, leads me to the Red Terror, right? Uh, The Bolsheviks after the October Revolution, uh, you know, undertake a program to consolidate their power, which, among other things, leads to the creation of the secret police, the Cheka, and then, of course, during the Russian Civil War, uh, this group will carry out what we now call the Red Terror. And the reason why I wanted to ask you about this is because, if I'm not mistaken, the Bolsheviks modeled uh, their program of, you know, um, uh, stamping out counter-revolutionary activity on what they understood the Jacobins to have done. So I suppose my question for you is, how should we understand this time period, or how should we understand the Red Terror? I uh, I agree. It's an ambiguous, difficult period. But again, we should clarify some things. I forgot the name of a British general. You know, when there was a civil war, all the world powers joined in it against the new Bolshevik regime. This, from big known fellows, like even the writer, British kids, popular, Somerset Mom, he worked as a Russian agent, was sent with immense amount of money to undermine the Bolshevik. And uh, you know what's important to know? First, if you do the simple uh, uh, inflation-adjusted uh, account of how much money Western powers spent. We are talking, I read in a recent history account, of sums approaching one, 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 uh, one trillion of dollars in today's terms. So it wasn't a small operation. Second thing, uh, remember that when, uh, uh, when at some point Kolchak, the admiral, who was the most dangerous of counter-revolutionary heroes, uh, he held more than two-thirds of Russia, even beyond Ural. At some point, Bolsheviks held only, uh, I think, about like one-seventh or even one-ninth of a Russian territory. So what I want to say is this. There was, of course, a, a, a kind of an unofficial embassy. A British general worked with there to help Kolchak. And that, some, some left guy should reprint this. He wrote after the defeat of the counter-revolution, his memoirs, very honest. Mm. You see, we should learn from 
honest, uh, honest conservative opponent because he worked for us. He said that whatever you say about Bolsheviks, he was shocked by the terror of these white armies. Mm -hmm. You know what was the typical story? Bolsheviks were maybe a little bit rough, blah, blah, but not really. So Kolchak came and did what? Incredible purges, uh, returning land to rich landlords and so on. That's not only with Trotsky's ingenious military machine. That's how the Bolshevik, and then uh, today when anti-Semitism is prohibited, which is a good thing, you should especially note that one of the first books that in Kolchak territory, they started to reprint like crazy, were of course the Protocols of Zion, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Kolchak is at the beginning of this idea of... Uh, of Bolshevik revolution is part of a Jewish plot and so on and so on. So again, what about the beginning of red terror? Now it's so interesting to read. Good, they don't have even to be biased by our leftist views. Good uh, witness account. For example, you can uh, download it for free on, I don't know where, YouTube. Bertrand Russell on the theory and practice of Bolshevism. He has many complaints, but he, he admits it that at that point, 1919 or when, that in spite of the terrible situation, military and so on, he didn't have any problem of, uh, of, uh, of contacting the opposition persons, Benchevich, all other who were still there talking with them. Uh, you know what's uh, uh, the problem? Uh, you know how Red Terror began? Lenin, till that period, till 1920, I think, do you know, and this gives you a flair, an idea of the situation there. You know that Lenin was simply driving around just with a chauffeur in his car. You know what once happened to Lenin in, I think, uh, mid-1918? He was stopped out of Moscow uh, on his way to deliver a speech to some high school conclusion of the uh, he, uh, he and his driver were stopped by a gang who took the car and didn't recognize them and just uh, walk away. So then Lenin and his driver somehow reached the nearest police station. There, they didn't believe him that he is Lenin, the madman, go and so on. And you know how that attentat on Lenin happened? He was returning to Kremlin again in a car. And some women gathered at the entrance to Kremlin started to shout at him, you screwed up, blah, blah, blah. Lenin stopped the car, went out, began to talk with them, and then there was the... No, mm -hmm. then red terror was strictly a, a, a reaction. At the same time, you know, Another figure, now I will say something horrible, but another figure to be partially rehabilitated is the one who is today painted as the ultimate evil, the founder of Cheka, Dzerzhinsky. Mm -hmm. He was an incredibly interesting person. Read the biography of him. He always tried to limit the terror. Uh, he saw the human costs. And it was because of him all the time after the end of civil war, after 1920, he all the time put the pressure on Politburo, listen, these guys are already two years in prison, let's release them. And then later, 
before his death, his big activity was to organize for literally two, three million uh, homeless children wandering around Russian big cities to organize this. So again, <laughs> the other thing is that, you know, it wasn't that we had a nice democratic order and then evil Bolsheviks are introducing terror and so on. Don't underestimate, again, the absolutely terrorist nature of the, of the, count, of the counter-revolution. That's why Bolsheviks gone. Not only because Trotsky was a good organizer, jumping up and down on his legendary train or whatever, you know. No, it also don't underestimate it. In spite of all distortions and so on, the, how should I call it, a socially liberating force in the sexuality, rights of women and so on, it's breathtaking what happened then. Not only instant legalization of uh, uh, homosexuality, but even freedom of women and so on. This survived, even I forgot the title of the movie, till late 20s, a little bit of it, when I even don't know who shot it. There is a famous movie about a young husband and wife, a friend visits them and the wife falls in love with both men. And then they lead a life, a marriage in three, then there are some problems, but everything is taken quite normally and so on. It was, again, it was, it was an incredible period, incredible artistic productivity. I mean, uh, we uh, underestimate to what extent Stalin, not so much late 20s as early 30s, changed not only political situation, but also the entire, uh, the entire cultural scene. And mm -hmm. to make one big distinction, we can go on if you want later, but I like this superficial sign of signs of deeper distinctions. Like, you know, with all his, but he wasn't very paranoid. Paranoia, like enemies arrest them. Two things strike the eye always with Lenin. First, the lack of personal vendetta. When a guy lost, Lenin usually even tried to find a way to use him for another lower job or marginal position. He never had this uh, vengeance spirit of now we have to kill him and so on. For example, you know, all these are my bourgeois sources, my God. When I, I read the book on that philosoph uh, philosopher's uh, uh, boat or whatever, you know, when in 21, 22, they sent over 100 of academics to the West. And there was a guy on the list whom Lenin didn't like. And he asked Gervinsky, what about that guy? Gervinsky said, yes, he's somewhere in Ural, uh, 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 dying of some illness and so on. And Lenin instantly forgot about hatred and said, oh my God, help him, get him an additional uh, And even, it's an incredible story. You know who was the main Menshevik, who was quite a charming person. He just did stick to this Marxist dogma, Martov. Lenin, to the end, remained warm towards him. Like when they sent a delegation in 22, I don't know when, to the, to the West, and one of them met Martov, Lenin immediately asked, my God, how is the guy, and so on. So, uh, and also, considering his paranoia, 
one can make such a nice distinction here. For Lenin, there were renegades, people who were once ours, and then they become traitors, okay? But in Stalinism, you don't have renegades. When, let's say, sorry, I like this sadism. Let's say I am Stalin and you are some Bukharian type. No. <laughs> Stalin's logic is always, if you get, become now my enemy, it means you are secretly back all the time already the enemy. That's what Stalin did yeah. with Trotsky, Bukharian. Trotsky joined the revolution just to betray it. <laughs> you know, there is no renegades. From the beginning, you must have been a traitor. Another thing, Lenin, it may sound a little bit dogmatic, but I think it's a correct category. Like to use the category of uh, objective responsibility. You may be a good humanitarian, but you are doing things which objectively in this situation serve the enemy. Stalin is doing something else. He immediately subjectivized this. Stalin doesn't say you are objectively serving the enemy. Stalin says, no, if you objectively serve the enemy, it means that you are their spy and so on and so on. Yeah. It's a totally, it's a totally different, uh, it's a totally different logic. Now, I don't think there was a chance through some miracle, some Trotsky friends of mine have this dream, you know. If only Lenin were to survive for three years more and uh, whatever, and made a pact with Trotsky. The situation was so difficult that I don't think they had a great chance. I think, if you ask me, the most tragic moment of the October Revolution was precisely at the end of the civil war. Because then it was also the end of, let's call it, state of emergency. And then the real task began. How to build a new society. And mm -hmm. it meant quite concrete things, like even at the level of, I don't know, manners, funerals, uh, sexual habits, and so on. Precisely this unwritten rules of everyday life and so on. This was, if you ask me the true defeat, but my final point, you will like this answer, when people don't jump too quickly from Lenin, Cheka and so on to later Stalinism, you know which theory I love? That uh, the rise of the Soviet state as we usually know it and associate with it, you know, was precisely the result of NEP, new economic politics, which uh, allowed for more freedom of uh, capital, even up to a point, and so on. And uh, in Stalin, you find already at that point some crucial passages where he says, okay, we made a compromise in economy, but not to lose power, we have to strengthen our state power, uh, secret police, and so on and so on. So the paradox is that the rise of secret police terror is precisely the hardline Bolshevik post-Lenin reaction to this economic liberalization. Fear of, if we concede there, my God, we have to have other apparatuses to control. No, I think I'm not here an optimist. I don't believe in these magical stories and so on, but I think that nonetheless we should treat even Stalinism, in some sense, as Kosha put it, a great betrayal, but our own betrayal. It happened mm -hmm. to our side. In this sense, it's a true tragedy. 
fascism, especially Nazism, it's not a tragedy. In what sense not? It is for the millions who died, but it's that, uh, for the Putin, what is Nazism? People, some people came to power, they said, we will do bad things, and look, look, they really did all those bad things, you know. But nonetheless, Lenin, Leninist revolution was an authentic attempt at emancipation. And we have to analyze without any uh, critical limitations how this happened. I am not uh, afraid to go even back to Marx, who sometimes neglected the problem of social organization of work, in the sense that Marx sometimes gives this image of communism as a totally self-transparent society where, and it's not clear how, some organ or society will organize and um, production and distribution. And Marx even very significantly often passes from plural to singular. He says, you know, in his famous uh, uh, part in Capital, I think, when he talks about different modes of production and he begins with Robinson. And then he says, in communism, we return to Robinson. Only Robinson is no longer one alone, but uh, some collective body and so on. So uh, this, this is the trick to do it for us. The sport is not to, the game to play is not to blame Marx, you know, this eternal obsession. Where did it begin? Did it with Stalin, with Lenin, with Marx, with, with uh, uh, Jacobins, with Oliver Cromwell, who is another of my good guys? Because I think if we play this game, the definitive answer was provided, although I don't quite agree with it, by Adorno and Horkheimer. The break is at the very beginning. You know, that's the thesis of their dialectic of enlightenment, that with the first primitive caveman magic, you know, I sacrifice that animal so that I, whatever, manipulation is already there. So we shouldn't fall into this. On the other hand, uh, we should learn from conservatives in the sense that, again, we shouldn't fall into this trap of gradual progress. The passage from classical Marxism to Leninist Bolshevism and then to Mao, it's not a simple expansion from Western mm -hmm. Europe to, to Russia, from Russia. No, in some sense, what, again, the great conservative, my God, uh, Eliot says that with every really new work of art, in some sense, the entire past changes also. Mm -hmm. no? no, after Lenin, you cannot read Marx the same way, even if Lenin went much further. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with Mao. I'm very critical of some Mao's things. No? And this is what confronts us today. To do what Lenin do, did in today's situation. Sorry, go on. No, I, I, I was, yeah. I was just going to say, uh, you know, leading from that, um, I want to go back to something that you mentioned, the end of the Russian Civil War and Lenin, uh, because yes. I, I uh, a few years ago, I believe, you wrote an article for NLR, for New Left Review, uh, where you look at some of Lenin's writings right after the Russian Civil War. And, yes. um, you, in, you know, in one text in particular, he uses the analogy of a mountain climber who's scaling it's a mountain. A it, it's, it's so good. Yes. Yeah. I, so I was just going to add, you know, so the, the analogy is, you know, a mountain climber who's scaling a mountain 
mountain reaches an impasse and has to move backwards in order to find yeah, another pass to move done. forward. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you why you find that text and that analogy uh, so useful. Because Lenin is very clear there. His answer is not this evolutionary. We, we should stop at that level. No. He says literally, we should go all the way back to the bottom and begin again. And this is what Lenin did already in the October Revolution. He didn't just say we should change Marxist standard view of proletarianism. No, he, in a way, by putting an accent on, on, on farmers, all that stuff, and so on, Lenin was so refreshingly open here. You know that in one of his texts from that period, after World War, sorry, after the end of the Civil War, Lenin says, we have a paradox now, we have a party representing working class on power, but practically all the working class is dead. <laughs> no one that we can... Lenin was absolutely open. But you know what's so great about Lenin? The usual uh, social democratic evolutionary guy would have said, oh, stop, so, to be an authentic working class party, we should step down and develop working class. No, Lenin in this crazy paradoxical situation, radical party on power without working class practically. Lenin just in a principled but pragmatic way asked himself, but what can we do? What can we do? And he found a way in this uh, uh, modernization, especially simple uh, civilization, not in the Western racist way, but nonetheless. So uh, uh, this is also what we have to do today. If we were to have more time, the, pro the guy who is a problem today is, you should do something, Jacobin, about it. It's incredible paradox. Maybe he's the most important intellectual today. Did he do something about Wang Kuning? He's now one of the seven members of the standing uh, committee of the Politburo, the seven who basically run China, the strongest. And it's incredible what he did. 30 years ago, he wrote a book called America Against America. As a young guy, he visited the United States and in a very intelligent way. He saw all the deadlocks already that led to Trump, populism, social disintegration, and so on. And his big obsession was how to prevent that this will happen to China also. And now it is happening to China. And uh, so the idea is that he's the brain behind Xi, the Chinese president's recent measures. Will they... Uh, I am... My point is this one. Yes, in our media, you just hear uh, what they do to Uyghurs, to Tibetans, intellectual life, and so on. It's true. I don't agree with that. It's horrible. But uh, it's a wrong, repressive answer to a very real problem of today's capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, a week ago, even less, I had here in Ljubljana a roundtable with Yanis Varoufakis, my friend, who in some sense, is even more crazy than me, you know, in this <laughs> radical sense. But he said something which maybe is a uh, rhetoric exaggeration, but it's right. He said that didn't we notice that capitalism as we knew it, liberal democratic capitalism, is in the last years de facto disappearing. 
because there are so many strange phenomena. Like you remember a year ago on the very day when it was reported that in United Kingdom, brutal product fell for 20% and in United States similar, stock markets went up. So it's as if this division between, let's call it real capital and speculative capital exploded open. Then next thing, how uh, we are today witnessing what one cannot but call uh, 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 Keynesianism at reverse. We are printing immense amounts of we. Sorry, I would like to have some of those in power banks. Immense amounts of money, trillions. But they are not invested in a Keynesian way into let's call it real people's needs, production. Maybe a small part. It all remains within this uh, speculative circles, like uh, a big company like Volkswagen had to be saved. So they, Deutsche Bank gives half a billion, even more to Volkswagen, who buys their own stocks. It all remains up there. So this thing then, there is, I'm not sure the term is correct, but it designates a real phenomenon. This so-called uh, neo-feudal corporatism. You know, big corporations, which as I developed in a couple of my books repetitively, uh, are privatizing our commons. Like, if you buy books, the commons of books, it's Amazon. The commons of private communication is Facebook, and so on and so on. And this is no longer capitalism as we knew it. This is a return to rent and so on. And Chinese are in some sense aware of this, that uh, capitalism as we knew it is... Uh, is, is, is disintegrating. It's already tremendously changing now into something else. So that's how I read, and my Chinese friends confirm this, extraordinary news that now, as part of this Xi, uh, President Xi initiative, you know what they did? They opened in Beijing a new stock market exchange uh, to deal with small dynamic companies and so on. It's as if the Chinese are doing an absolutely crazy thing to break this new, almost post-capitalist rule of big corporations. They are trying to make a pact with small dynamic capitalism. <laughs> as if they saw it that the danger is so great of this new corporate rule. And I even understand what they are doing in a wrong way, what crazy things are happening there at the level of, it's not just this anti-corporate rule push for workers' equality, as Varoufakis uh, reminded me, it's easy to uh, just mock him as the new totalitarian. But President Xi said something wonderfully dialectical now a couple of weeks ago. He said that to listen at the intelligence insight, to raise the ordinary people's standards, we have to lower the growth, the rise of production. It's a very wise argument. So, as always, then I give you back work. I will finish with a dirty story which I like. You know that now in China, they prohibited what they call 996. Mm -hmm. Okay, dirty guy as I am from my youth, we knew, okay, I didn't do it, you know what 69 means. 
mutual oral sex position. And I've heard of it. God, what is this China that the party is now even prohibiting certain sexual position? No, no, no. And then I learned what it is. It's the practice imposed by big corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you work for 12 hours, nine to nine for six days of the week. So again, we may disagree. They do it in a authoritarian way and so on. But they much more than we in the West. They are confronting the right problems. I'm just afraid that maybe uh, it will not work. But I think that their failure will be uh, something horrible for the entire humanity if they fail. Because again, they take problems much more seriously. They see the basic problems much more. And again, what I'm saying is that uh, this guy, Van Kuning, is defining himself as a neoconservative. In his books, he quotes positively. Uh, Alan Bloom, the closing of the American mind, Huntington, and so on, all that stuff. This is his limit. I think that he sees all these topics that even conservatives today see, the social disintegration and so on. What he doesn't see, I think, is that uh, this... uh, So what he doesn't see is that this, let's call it, without this time, without any evil connotations, soft fascist version, because this is the dream of fascism. Let's keep capitalism, but in a more balanced way, counteracted by social solidarity, values, and so on and so on. I don't think this solution in the long term works. But it's extremely important. Sorry. No. Well, uh, on that on that cheery note, um, it is October. Um, it is not only the uh, you know the anniversary of the revolution in Russia, but it's also the the month of Halloween movies and horror movies. Uh, the number one movie in America is the latest version of Halloween. Uh, we just wanted to wrap the the interview by asking you some of what are, what are some of your favorite horror movies. I must tell you that I uh, I don't like. So uh, you know which one? Here I'm an old-fashioned leftist. Okay, I will give you my report on the class struggle scene in Hollywood movies. You yes, know. we we know you love they, we know you love they live. Yeah, but I didn't want to repeat that. <laughs> okay. I wanted to say that uh, first this accident of Alec Baldwin. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. A guy. I met people who met people who knew him. And they told me, some guys in Hollywood, that, you know, don't underestimate him. He is not this usual, caring, liberal who makes a big statement about we only have one Earth and so on. (laughs) When there was some 10, 15 years ago, a a strike of all these ordinary people in Hollywood, those who carry cameras, who do the costumes, Alec Baldwin did something extraordinary. He connected with them and then used all his links to big stars to mobilize them. And the strike was a success. Not many people do this. So-called conscious Hollywood guys, they much prefer this bullshit of we only have one word, uh, war never. Uh, you know, like this pacifism. I hate pacifism. You know why? Not because I want war. But are we aware that when, for example, Israel said, we want peace. 
occupiers always want peace and sincerely. Germans in 43, they wanted peace in Europe. They get, they get what they want. And it's the same on the West Bank. Of course, Israel wants peace, you know. So again, I say Alec Baldwin, second thing, I, I, now comes a more tricky point. But uh, correct me, I think I even mentioned this in one of my texts for Jacobin. Uh, sorry to tell you this, I don't like Nomadland so much because it comes for me too close to what I call class warfare, ident warfare identity politics, as mm. also those uh, uh, precarious workers uh, who don't have a permanent home, they also have their way of life. Don't romanticize them. Their basic problem is not we want our authentic life. Their basic problem is they simply do not want to be what they are. You know, it comes too close to this, you know. So that one, it was so-so. I didn't like, now you will see my fascist side, I must say. I don't know why, but, and I'm not kidding, there is something dark in me. I am afraid to see the movie because I was afraid that I will be disappointed by it. I guess first another critique, this uh, squid game or what, you know. There is something fake in it. It is apparently anti-capitalist, but it's anti-capitalist, like, you know, capitalism, we are in debt, blah, blah, blah. It translates it into a game, we participate in it, like, it's very form, how it's stateless capitalism reproduces, reproduces capitalism. It's the same problem I claim as with, uh, as with, uh, 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 handmade Tale, especially the TV version. You know, under the pretext of, oh, what a horrible thing uh, um, the, that society is, uh, they basically allow you to secretly enjoy all your anti-feminist cliches. Like, all my friends, leftists, even many women, are fascinated. Oh my God, they do this to women. You know, they, there is a great industry today of false anti-establishment, anti-capitalism, which under the pretext of religion uh, allow you to enjoy it. Uh, uh, okay, now the big question, uh, it's ambiguous, the new James Bond, I don't like it too much, but it's interesting. And I'm not for this usual solution, let's have a black woman, you know, young who will play. No, this is just politically correct, apparent anti-sexism, if they want to do it, something else. But the one I like, it's a little bit fascist, but I fall for it again. And now you will in immediately cut the link, probably Dune, the new Dune. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I like it too. Uh, I like it. Sorry? Yeah, but you know that well. we are in danger. We will soon be attacked for being proto-fascist or whatever yeah. and so on and so on. I, of course... Many people take it for a portrait of a fake fascist revolution, whatever. But I like writers, and I think Frank Herbert was the best here, who, uh, better, I think, than Lord of the Rings and so on, who paint such a wonderful image of a whole universe, of a whole new, of a whole new society. No? So, again, uh, my lesson is this, a very sad one. Everything that appears anti-capitalist is not necessarily anti-capitalist 
You know, it's the same my eternal joke, don't you agree? If you look for true capitalism in visual arts, are these biennales, every two years, and it's big business, but as a rule, the ideology is, and they even admit it, we know we are all part of capitalist machine and so on. Yes, they say, say this, but you know, it's like that Marx Brothers joke, you know. Uh, warning, this guy looks as an idiot, acts as an idiot, but this shouldn't deceive you, he is an idiot, you know. It's what these are there. No, they admit they are slain, they are part of capitalist reproduction, these all progressive artists and so on, visual, but no, but they really are parts of uh, capitalist reproduction. So I think we should, in the Leninist spirit here, be again active principled opportunists. Be ready everywhere to see uh, a potential progressive youth. Don't fall into this dogma that if a, movie, if a movie is depressive or whatever, that it's necessarily progressive. I uh, agree 100%. Have, do you have? Now open your heart. Do you have? I know, blah, blah, blah. Do you, do you, what are your favorite productions now? Movies, TV series, and so on. Um, I quite like Dune um, as well. Um, I also quite enjoyed uh, White Lotus. I thought the satire was pretty sharp uh, uh, in White Lotus. Uh, that, that, that small Hawaiian hotel. You know, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I, I liked White Lotus too. Yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah. here comes my bourgeois side. <laughs> but it's such a desperate world. You can sympathize literally with nobody there. Maybe with some yeah. women, but I cannot even choose which of the three main male characters. That hotel manager or that guy, one of the most disgusting scenes, you remember at the beginning, he shows his testicles, do I have cancer? And the yeah. husband of that, the corrupted one. Aren't they all so absolutely disgusting? And maybe there is still a bourgeois side of me. I want some yeah. nice <laughs> Nobody. But it's interesting. I think it's correct image of, of depression of our side, of our, yeah. sorry, of our era. You know? Yeah. 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 All right. Well, Slavoj, you have been very generous with your time. So I think we, yeah, yeah. after all whenever of that. You want, <laughs> whenever you want, how can you say no to somebody who represents an organization called Jacobi? You know, like, <laughs> How can you say no to someone who represents an organization called Jacobin? You can't. I didn't. You can't. That's, yeah. That's how we all got roped into this. Indeed it is. Uh, and now you all know both Slavoj Zizek and Nando are pro-Dune. Um, I actually haven't seen it yet, so. Yeah, I also haven't and would probably like to this weekend. Uh, so if you're in New York, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I mean, he's, he's so much fun. Uh, yeah. and he, oh, hold on. Someone was like, look who's back. Speak of the devil. Um, you, you and gotta, Slavoj, the pro Dune. You gotta, you gotta fix your mic. You got robot voice. <laughs> uh, all right. Anyway, um, anyways. while, uh, now that we have Nando back, should we open it up to some questions? I don't know if you guys have any, um, if there are any already, if not, totally fine too. Yeah, just uh, we got a couple minutes. If anyone in the chat 
uh, you don't have to pay money or anything. If you have a question, we'll try to get to it. Um, uh, Nanda, where'd you Do watch Do I sound good you? now? Yes. Yeah. I watched it at IMAX in the Westfield Mall in LA. Mm. It was nice. great. You yeah. gotta go big on this one. That's that's gotta go movie. big. You gotta, yeah. 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 There's certain movies that you really should just like. There's movies that I've never seen because I missed it when it was in theaters. Like I've never seen Interstellar because I didn't see it in IMAX, and I'm like, what's the point if I don't see it in IMAX? I really like that movie. You know what? I have never seen Avatar for exactly the same reason. I didn't. I never saw it Ooh. in theaters, or like it was supposed to be like in 3D, right? And I missed mm-hmm. that, so it's like, well, what's the point? I'm not going to yeah. put on the glasses and have the, uh, isn't this something that Slavoj has talked about uh, in like prior essays or interviews that like Avatar, the the experience of Avatar was so immersive that like lots of people were depressed afterwards saying they didn't want to go yeah. back to real life. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah, know if you yeah, guys I, can relate. I remember being, I remember being very blown away by Avatar at yeah. the time. Like it, it looked like just something I'd never seen before. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that right. was a wave for a while. The like 3D movies, uh, like a step up from the glasses with like the red and blue lens, like, but yeah. still kind of bad. Um, I I saw actually. I don't know if I should admit this on YouTube, but I guess it's too late. I saw like the 300 sequel in a movie theater in 3D, and that was. I mean, I feel like that's the type of movie for which. How was have- that? So good, <laughs> right? A true masterpiece. Didn't they oh. all die in the end? <laughs> the first one? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The 300, the sequel, is actually a prequel. It's 300 uh, more. <laughs> the 300 that came before, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're right, they all died. Yeah. They all die in this point. one, too, so spoiler yeah. alert. Yeah. How is it a prequel? How do you... Um, I feel like, like you're running into battle. the same problem. I, I literally can't believe we're talking about this. <laughs> um yeah well this is what happens when you don't send us questions we end up we we get stuck on uh 300 the prequel yeah um yeah sorry um spoilers it's okay you guys (laughs) you really spoil we spoiled spoiled 300 (laughs) (laughs) yeah just look uh, up the Wikipedia page for the Battle of Thermopylae. And yeah, it's, kind of, it's kind of a story that's been around for thousands yeah. of years. It's so. like uh, in the Passion of the Christ, at the end of it, you know, Jesus gets crucified. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, what? spoiler alert. Oh, did, you, did you see that Jim Caviezel, speaking of Passion of the Christ yesterday, went to like a QAnon conference in mm. Vegas, and he's like a big QAnon guy now? No, what happened? Were, didn't even know they were still doing QAnon conferences. Oh, yeah. QAnon is like live and well. It's not, it's not going nowhere. Yeah. Um, This is a question we were talking about this a bit earlier, but I don't know if we actually addressed the genre question of what's your favorite horror genre or subgenre. Oh yeah. Um, Mine's definitely the home invasion uh, or like the standard eighties slasher. But um, I, I, you know, talked a little bit about Rosemary's baby. I also like pregnancy horror. No Mm. pregnancy horror will ever be as good as Rosemary's baby. And many have tried, but those are my top two, I think. Nando? Yeah, I like, um, for some reason, I like, it's more of a time period for me. Like, I like the horror from, like, 76 to 1984, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, the, that those years of horror. Like, Alien, you know, was a great movie, and it's probably, like, kind of a horror movie. 
Um, the Thing oh, yeah. is a great horror movie. Halloween. Uh, Texas Chainsaw. Uh, Do you like that? Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Yeah. Evil Dead uh, kind mm-hmm. of was in that era. Uh, yeah. Um, you know what I, I like, like the about 90s, that? I appreciated Scream when it came mm-hmm. out, you know? Yeah. And it, I remember like I remember it being like just kind of everyone was talking about it. Um, yeah. I think it's having a bit of a, a renaissance. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, I haven't seen it in a while, but... I the 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 first period of horror movies that you're talking about, like the kind of like high slasher era. I I like those movies a lot because the killer is usually just like a deranged freak who has no motive. They're just like crazy and bad. Right. Um, and and I feel like um, by the '90s you start to see this weird thing where uh, it was the kind of same formula of like you know a killer and you're not really quite sure who it is and they're like popping out of dark corners and they slowly pick off teens one by one but in all of the 90s slashers the killer has some sort of like incredibly elaborate backstory you know like it's like Mm -hmm. you ran over my brother like 10 years ago and I've been quietly stalking you since then plotting this elaborate revenge and uh I don't know I know what you did last summer exactly you know and then I still know what you did last summer (laughs) still still (laughs) know the best best sequel name of all time um this year uh I got really into just all Brian De Palma movies and I guess you could call a lot of his like Dress to Kill you can call kind of a slasher mm-hmm. uh, very problematic by today's uh, by today's standard mm-hmm. it's a good movie, still though. a really good movie I thought yeah, yeah. Body, <laughs> Body Double great movie mm-hmm. Blowout is a great movie and mm-hmm. that's kind of like a serial killer horror yeah. type yeah. movie in a way Sisters. Paranoia Sisters is Sisters. Maybe yeah, I like Sisters. my favorite yeah. yeah and that includes Carrie that I'll, I think Sisters is is my favorite of that I think blowout. I think blowout is my favorite. I think blowout's like a perfect movie. Yeah, you guys. I think Carrie is my favorite. <laughs> well, we can we can it's all good, agree good, that good Carrie, take. blowout, and sisters are the the definitive <laughs> yeah. like best yeah. of horror De Palma, and we're not yeah. even touching the other kind of De Palma. Um, yeah. uh, Kale, your favorite your favorite horror subgenre. Um. I mean, I, I agree with the time period. I, I also would say, um, I mean, I just end up getting drawn to more of the psychological or the sexual horror ones, or, you know, I like, I like David Cronenberg, uh, that he's like, David's great because in some ways it's like really simple and straightforward when he does a horror film. Like, um, I think I, I mentioned this actually in a YouTube video last year, but I had just seen the brood for the first time. Oh yeah, and, it's really good. Yeah, well, because it's like it's such like a very in some ways it's very literal, where mm-hmm. it's like a woman who is in an experimental psychological program uh, is. I'm spoiling a little bit, but like the idea of like kind of like your actual angry feelings kind of coming to life, and like what if like the things all like the the things you say when you're in therapy, basically, like yeah. when, as you're like kind of working through how it plays out in your head what if like those things actually kind of came alive? And so it's in some ways it's very simple, but it's also just so like the simplicity, like it's in some ways because it's, it's kept simple. It's like, it's put certain parameters on like how crazy it gets. And therefore you can actually focus on like the psychology of the people. And then on like the actual like fear of the scenarios that are coming out of it. So I, I think Cronenberg is, is one of the best. And um, of course, you know, uh, as Jen mentioned before, you know, my all-time favorite still remains The Shining. Because mm. you know, there was the genre. The Shining. 
But he he, yeah, he, he didn't want to get into it for this episode, so stay tuned. Right. right. Um, there was the genre that came about uh, kind of uh, after Shaun of the Dead, uh, the horror comedy uh, oh, yeah. subgenre. Um, yeah. There's some good ones. Shaun of the Dead is very good. Um, yeah. I remember like thinking like when I was in high school that like the satire of like oh he's walking around and he's surrounded by a bunch of zombies and he doesn't notice that they're zombies because we're all zombies in our day-to-day <laughs> lives i remember like i was like i get it i get it <laughs> right, right um uh, but like did you guys see that movie ready or not with that actress that looks yeah, a lot like yeah yeah i was gonna say i like that i actually do like that movie and um a yeah. similar one is you're next have you guys seen that oh, yeah. i think it's on netflix no. mm. you're not a fan i don't know it i haven't seen no. it okay yeah anyway yeah kind of similar um i what was i gonna say um mm. yeah yeah you should you have to watch all these movies before next week's show by the way this is right it's homework yeah this is this is just the this is just the lead up to the actual horror episode no just kidding yeah um well uh do you guys have any last thoughts on the Russian Revolution? <laughs> you know, a bit, a bit of a right turn, but that was the topic with Slavoj. And I mean, I warned everybody, I really enjoyed talking with him, but I, I feel like we didn't proceed in the chronological order that I like thought maybe we would. Um, but I don't know. Do you guys have any, any thoughts on 1917? Yeah. Um... <laughs> yeah. Where to begin? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, I think in general, just, uh, um, again, like the, there's this sense that, um, the left, uh, that was like a, a great victory, um, obviously. Um, and then, but it, it wasn't consolidated cause it didn't, you know, it didn't expand much beyond, uh, Russia in, into Europe. I mean, it, the third world, uh, you know, it did, but, uh, it didn't really expand into Europe or wasn't able to. And that like, there's a sense that because it didn't kind of win in western europe that it was just it was just like an inevitable decline from there um and uh I, you know i think about that a lot like how sad it is but you know in a way that um that also kind of puts things into perspective as to how long the timelines are of 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 change and that like you're like oh my god are they gonna pass the reconciliation bill you know yeah and then you realize like dude this is like a hundreds year long uh struggle yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that before we were talking to Slavoj, actually, because you know the tendency when we're talking about history and especially socialist history is to try to find parallels uh, between what happened then and now, or like if not parallels, at least some sort of turning point or some sort of moment where we can uh, that that might seem maybe slightly analog- analogous, but it's like kind of hard to sort of think through, say, Lenin's writings between the period, between like the February Revolution and the October Revolution, when we're living in 21st century United States, and like Biden can't even get his reconciliation bill through, you know? Yeah, I think Well, the other the other thing I love about the Russian Revolution is the like the very bitter arguments that people still have about it, like the fact that that Zizek and and Chomsky are like mad at each other, or like maybe Zizek is like not mad, but like, you know, that he referenced it in the interview where he's like, uh, uh, you know, like Noam Chomsky is very mad at me when I say. Lenin was good because he yeah. thinks he, he, he did a coup d'etat and whatever. And it's like, uh, I, I find that kind of quaint and funny yeah. when people get very 
way too into it. People, I'm from Spain and there's like a version of this in Spain, like when people get very mad mm. about like whether, you know, uh, the POUM or, uh, you know, the, the, the communist, whatever, you know, like that mm-hmm. kind of thing, like getting, getting mad about that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. Um, I always find kind of funny. Oh yeah. yeah. Like, like big pastime on the left. Uh, in fact, Slavoj in his interview mentioned, he was like, I have these Trotskyist friends who will always do this thing where they're like, if Lenin had just lived for like three years longer, right. You know, then, like, I love that. The they, I'm history... imagining that dinner party where they're doing that, you know, right, like, yeah. as they're like, you know, drinking wine or something. Yeah, exactly. Like only Lenin had lived three more years. Yeah, it's it's quaint, but it, like it's also I don't know. Uh, you you don't want to be. We shouldn't be doing that much more than we already do. I mean, I think I think in some ways the um, you know the whole thing about the Russian Revolution. Slavoj mentions this in the interview about kind of the um, kind of the more traditional classical marxian understanding of history is that like socialism comes about as an inevitability because of the the, uh, the growth and the forces of production and you know and now the, the relations of production are fettering the forces and so the forces have to, se- to select new relations that whole kind of like that jargon just basically saying socialism will happen because capitalism necessarily will fall but it has to be at it has to be developed to a certain point for socialism to come about that whole kind of thing, I think, which is in Marx, not all of Marx, but it's in Marx, um, is, I think, just wrong. And uh, and I think so some people took the, the Russian Revolution as evidence of, OK, yeah, it's wrong because like Russia transitions to socialism before the conditions of capitalism are ripe or something. Um, but then it ended up leading to far too many people going in the opposite direction of saying, well, if you can have revolution then, then you can have revolution anywhere and anytime. And so as long as like, you know, the people, the, the, the Leninist party is ready, as long as like the vanguard is ready, mm-hmm. you can have the transition or something. Right. And I think both are pretty clearly wrong that like, it's not the case that socialism will just necessarily happen. It, like if capitalism is so bad or so developed or whatever, it's also not the case that, you know, you can just ignore the actual, conditions of of capitalism today and just kind of bring about your transformation of society because you know your people all understand what to do you know you're all ideologically trained in the correct way or something mm-hmm. yeah um Agreed. and so for today i mean when we think of like you know what happened it's you know you can have an analysis but um you know and, and people should you know like it's important to look at history and understand what happened but um there's just not that many lessons. I don't think of like yeah. transition in like a still highly rural, highly peasant economy. Um, and Lenin's writings aren't really that helpful because he's not really writing theoretical work. He's writing like political, uh, political takes about like what to do. He's like, he's describing his situation as he understands it in those moments. And so like a lot of his analysis is very specific to the time period and it just doesn't carry right. over. Um, and uh, so it's there's a lot there that um, I think is worth going back to. And I think Zizek probably pulls out the most salvageable understanding of, of Lenin, which is that like he's one of the great like political theorists and organizers in world history because he's able to like assimilate both his theoretical knowledge and understand the forces on the ground. And, you know, it's like, he he does it he did it like Mm -hmm. he the fact that he's there when he's there means that they succeed 
And like, there's very few cases I think in history where you can say, you know, if the guy isn't there at that moment, it doesn't go that way. Like it's right. sometimes you can say that for presidents, you know, but like Lenin is not like a world leader when this happens. Like it's, I think that's pretty historically unique, but it's kind of, you know, there's certain qualities that we can take away from, from that experience. Um, just last things, uh, Theodore Whelan was asking who is doing labor journalism for Jackman right now. Alex Press is doing most, not all, but most of She's our- written on all of that stuff. Yeah, so you should check out Alex's work. Um, uh, there's some other questions, including best healthcare system in the world. Um, the, the NHS, right? Yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that usually wins the, that usually wins the contest? Yeah, that or Sweden or- I don't know. I don't know, but I would say look to the north. I saw in the outcomes, like they do like outcomes, you know, and Uh uh, they. NHS is still, still reigns supreme. Mm, I think so. Like in the, in the power rankings. In the power rankings. (laughs) Yeah. Because I thought, I mean, isn't it constantly under attack and like constantly eroding? Yeah. Yeah. Or being eroded. Yeah. Yeah. But yet, but, but it still triumphs. Fair enough. Still holds strong. Yeah. Um, champagne. How much does yeah. Stalker, uh, Oscar tells me how much he loves Stalin every day? Um, <laughs> I don't know about you guys. He texts me literally every morning. He's like, yeah. "Man, heart emoji, just Stalin. A great day to love Stalin." Yeah. Um, question one: Did Lenin do anything wrong? Yeah, of course. Duh. Um, of course he did. Everyone does stuff wrong. How much does Jacobin love Stalin? Um, Robespierre did nothing wrong. I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> um. Yeah. We have a lot of ironic love, probably, but not real. We don't. Our, our, our socialism is not the Soviet Union. So, um. Anyways, I think that's it. I think we'll end it there. Um, getting a lot of NHS Forever in the chat. Oh, great! Yeah. Yeah, NHS Forever. Fun There's like NHS. polling that says that like Brits love the NHS more than the freaking crown. Yeah, that's, that's the, great. Yeah, the that's NHS correct. Is the national religion of of England. Yeah. So so they say. Uh, okay. Uh, good show. We can end. <laughs> we'll see. You Thanks guys everybody later. for right, tuning guys. in. We'll see you next week. Hit like, love and you. Subscribe. Send us around. Bye. Bye.